space. The deep, dark nothing that separates our planet from the moon by 230,000 miles. When the sun comes up and our world comes alive, the warmth and light we feel on our face is coming from 92.95 million miles away. We can't even fathom that distance. And between us and our sun is a vacuum, the nothing of space. Space, appropriately named, is mostly about what isn't there. But what is there, what's hidden in the vast universe around us, has been at the core of human curiosity and passion for millennia. Who hasn't gazed longingly up at the sky on a clear night and wondered, is anyone out there? That curiosity for the mysterious inspired writers like Ray Bradbury, musicians like David Bowie, and of course, scientists like the ones you will hear from today. In this month's episode, we will fuel some of that curiosity for worlds unknown. Today, we search for life in space. Before we leave our own planet, we'll sit down with an incredible NASA scientist and astrobiologist, Mary Beth Wilhelm, who will answer the question, what does life look like on our own planet? That question may seem simple enough, but the answer turns out to be incredibly complex. Mary Beth is a PhD student in planetary science and astrobiology at Georgia Tech. We caught up with her following one of her trips to the Atacama Desert of Chile, where the intense heat and climate have created an ideal environment to look for preserved signs of ancient life. She's sort of a forensic scientist like on CSI, but instead of solving murders, she's looking for evidence of life that existed millions of years ago. You can check out her work on her website, marybethwilhelm.com, that's W-I-L-H-E-L-M.com, and also in our podcast notes section for some cool pictures and stories about her work. So you are looking at life and what that looks like. So if you could talk a little bit about like the basic elements and compounds that people consider necessary for life and as biomarkers of the existence of life. So I guess I'll just start off by saying that biomarker is a very broad term. And if you look at the types of compounds that make up life, scientists have realized that these elements are everywhere. The carbon ingredients that you know make up all of the life on Earth that originated in space and was delivered to the Earth's surface by meteorite and comet impact. So it turns out that we're all made of stardust. And the story goes that all of this material rained down onto very early Earth a few billion years ago and then started to undergo chemical processes and started to evolve into uh, single-celled organisms that become then multicellular organisms and then complex life and eventually intelligent life. And then when we talk about looking for life in the solar system, we're really talking about looking for microbial life. So I guess we can talk a little bit more about specifically what elements and compounds are universally accepted. I don't know, it's sort of controversial. It sort of depends on the scientist that you ask. Do we know what life is made up of on Earth? Amino acids, proteins, DNA, lipids. But then the question is, 
do we expect alien life form to use the same compound? And we think that in an environments like Earth, so maybe ancient Mars, which was long ago in its ancient history, much more Earth-like, we kind of expect those similar biomarkers to be used. But then you start to like get into issues of longevity in terms of how those things are preserved. Preserving organic matter is actually really hard because biology has gotten really good at recycling all the organics. So it's like 99.9% of organics are just constantly being recycled. Mm-hmm. Um, I specialize in looking at a class of biomarkers called lipids. And lipids are just the fats that make up cell membranes, if you remember from high school biology. Lipids turn out to be really important for understanding ancient life because if you look at the oldest rocks in the fossil record from these you know, three and a half billion-year-old deposits, you can find the little pieces of lipids that existed in environments billions of years ago that are still preserved today. They're very robust biomarkers. So lipids are useful just because of their longevity. There are more useful information-rich biomarkers, like DNA is sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum. They are the most short-lived, but they contain the most information about the organism. So they, you know, maximally only stick around for hundreds of thousands of years. So if you're looking, for example, on Mars, where we think that it was billions of years ago that Mars was habitable, DNA may not be the best biomarker to look for life in ancient deposits. If you're looking at environments that you think may still support life, then DNA is probably a better way to go. Sort of a conundrum. The most information-rich biomarkers are also the shortest lived. So that's kind of why I'm personally a fan of lipids because they have that longevity. And what kind of information about life can you get from lipids? So we can look at a structure of a lipid and know whether or not it came from a bacteria or an archaea. We can tell if photosynthesis was occurring in that environment. And then also you can tell sometimes if the organism was stressed out But that's on Earth, right? Like, if I was looking for life on Mars, I would look for a really basic pattern in the lipids just to identify that the lipids were indeed from life. We know what the patterns of lipids look like in space organic stuff that's not from life. But yeah, it's a really complicated problem to answer. Is that what you're doing out in the desert? So we actually just got back from the Atacama. I was down there for a month camping. And because these soils have such low concentrations of organics, like just even like standing around them, all of the bacteria on your body can like kind of fall into your sample and contaminate it. So we drive out to these field sites and then actually dig up these older deposits. And then once we do that, we put on full sterile cleanroom suits. So completely covered head to toe mm-hmm. and masks and goggles and two pairs of gloves. And it's 100 degrees outside, so you're just sweating inside these suits, but none of your contamination can get out. And then we collect jars and jars and jars of soil. It ended up returning like 200 pounds of dirt back to the U.S. And so now at the labs um, at NASA Ames, analyzing them, so you end up going from like 8 to 10 ounces of dirt, and you concentrate that down to like a drop. And that's what you inject into your instrument that tells you what the lipids look like and if they're there at all. So in the Atacama Desert, I'm looking at these really cool deposits. They are a few million years old, you know, very, very young geologically, but they're still ancient. So these million-year-old deposits, because it's in the driest place in the world and it's been dry for a few million years, like when I mean dry, I mean like it only rains once a decade. And when it does rain, it rains two millimeters. (laughs) And I started out looking for old lipids and it turned out because 
there hasn't been any rainwater, they haven't been degraded. The lipids that I'm looking at are completely intact. Like they're not really any different from what you'd find if you looked at lipids in your backyard. So we're finding exceptional preservation of lipids in really old, super dry environments on Earth. So is the idea behind that then because Mars was thought to at one point harbor water, but now is ridiculously dry that the work and the technology that you're sorting out in the desert could be translated to work on the surface of Mars? Exactly. So the idea is that exactly that, that Mars was once a very wet environment and had all of the necessary ingredients for life. And then early on in its history, it dried up and it's been really dry for a really long period of time. So the lessons we're learning in the Atacama, hopefully we can apply into looking for biomarkers on Mars. Do we currently have the technology to study lipids on Mars or is that like we would need to make some leaps and bounds before it could be a small piece of technology on a computerized device on the surface of another planet? Yeah, so today on Mars, we have a rover called Curiosity, and Curiosity was sent to Mars in 2012, and it's equipped with this instrument that's capable of looking at kind of simple organics, but it also has these little chemistry pots that contain a compound. One of them reacts with amino acids, and one of them reacts with lipids. So if it's there, we can make a detection of amino acids or lipids right now. So you were saying something about space lipids earlier and how they, you can tell the difference between space lipids and like life lipids. Can you tell that in the lipid samples that you're getting from the current rover? Yeah, so we haven't actually identified lipids yet. In theory, I guess we would be able to tell based on the pattern of the lipids. Lipids that come from space have a very distinct pattern, and lipids that come from life have a very distinct pattern. And hopefully, if we identify any, the pattern will emerge and we'll be able to tell. But then again, like there's all these problems. Like So even if we don't detect anything, it may not mean that they're, they're not there. It may just mean that we need to send instruments that are better equipped to make that measurement. You have to imagine that like taking the lab to Mars is very difficult. You can never clean your instrument. You can never troubleshoot it. You know, it's like what's there right now and operating it is all you get. And if anything goes wrong, it's a few hundred million miles away. So it's hard to, to make those measurements in the first place. And looking forward, NASA has plans to send another rover in 2020 that will include a different set of instruments to, again, look for organics. And hopefully this will be the focus of the Mars program over the next few decades is actually trying to identify biosignatures in ancient and in modern day, you know, maybe water-rich deposits. That's my dream is looking for signs of life that is recent or recently dead, not something, you know, billions of years old, but something that could have been alive yesterday or maybe, you know, a million years ago, which is just a drop in the bucket in terms of the geological timescale. Yeah, of course. And then if it is slightly more recent, you would also potentially be able to get the information from amino acids and DNA. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you can identify an organism that was only recently dead, then you have a better chance of learning a lot about that organism right. as opposed to just knowing that it was there, which is still an interesting data point. I think any detection of life on Mars would be an incredible one and have some extraordinary implications. As Mary Beth discussed, the evidence for life is hidden in the tiny molecules that remain long after living things cease to be alive. But these early life forms require a certain environment to maintain themselves and to evolve into plants and puppies and people. So we talked to a second Georgia Tech PhD student, Heather Chilton, to help define what the term habitable means with regards to space exploration. She was incredibly fired up about the ice-cold dwarf planet Ceres and a couple of pretty sweet moons that orbit Jupiter. She's taking a really creative approach to identifying water on Ceres and the moons of Jupiter, 
and hopefully identifying signs of life. My name is Heather Chilton. I work with Dr. Brittany Schmidt. My research is focused on quantifying the content and distribution of ground ice on the dwarf planet series located in the main asteroid belt. So as Mary Beth was saying, there's a lot of challenges involved with detecting life. And so one of the ways that we try and establish a broader, maybe checklist before we go with challenging attempts at discovering life is to determine whether the environment can even support life itself. That gets at the essence of habitability, where we look at are the conditions right to not just form, but maintain any life that could develop there. It just means that life may develop and can be supported in that environment. So some of the key things that we look for include essential chemical compounds, which play into some of what Mary Beth does, but also water. And a major reason for that is it acts as a solution so these chemicals can migrate. It provides a fantastic transport for small organisms. They are not stuck on a single location, but they have access to a great deal of resources in that fashion. Water also is one of the substances that is able to remain liquid across a large range of temperatures compared to other liquid. And it is also something we are familiar with. And our search generally has to start with what we know. We oftentimes will get questions, well, what about the life we don't know about? And, you know, things that challenge the imagination. And while those are fascinating and great exercises in the imagination, we don't have a good way to approach that. And part of science is a scientific process of looking at a system, coming up with these hypotheses and testing them. And part of funding is the ability to actually produce results. Can you talk a little bit about why liquid water is important? It also acts as a good way to transport heat. Another essential aspect to that is the energy of the system. In addition to uh, you know some of what you may have heard 10, 20 years ago about ocean black smokers, where you have these hydrothermal vents that are essentially providing sort of mini uh, volcanic style, roughly speaking, heat process where no photosynthesis occurs. It's too far down into the ocean for light to reach. You do have life existing there that is thriving off the energy provided from that heat. And so liquid water is one of the ways that they are able to access that and provide the chemical interactions to produce that life. Uh, ice, we're not going to get that sort of uh, movement. And if you do provide enough energy or heat to the system, it's going to melt it into water, in which case we end back up there as well. And then in terms of water vapor, we are again left with a situation that we are less familiar with in terms of the ability to support life. Additionally, vapor being substantially less dense is going to end up in uh, you know, atmospheres where you're not going to get the same kind of chemical interactions that you do at water-rock interfaces. And water-rock interfaces can be particularly important because you do often have a process that geologists call serpentinization. Essentially, what you end up with are these uh, primitive or olivine-rich rocks that when they interact with water, that exchange and chemical reaction, depending on the composition, can produce heating, which again, provides that energy. There's two components that also play into this uh, related to the stability of the system and the time involved. A lot of times you'll hear the term, you know, is the system in equilibrium thrown around? Because if it's in equilibrium, that means nothing's really changing and you don't have sort of those uh, chemical exchanges. So you do want a degree of disequilibrium in your system in order to maintain an environment that is dynamic and able to support life. Beyond that, you also need a extended amount of time for life to be able to exist and thrive. Because if, you know, your conditions for life only exist for 
a few thousand, hundred thousand years, it's not looking very good for any, any little microbes. One of the things that becomes very, very relevant in the solar system, particularly with planetary studies, is what the state of water is, whether it's you know liquid, solid, or vapor at different locations in the solar system, whether it's distance from the sun or on various planetary bodies. And so, for example, Mars maintaining you know an atmosphere and temperature pressure conditions where, uh, depending on where you are on the planet, it can sort of overlap with what we call the triple point of water, where it can very easily migrate um, you know, between being a liquid or gas or solid phase. Now, in other places in the solar system that lack you know, the temperature pressure conditions of Mars, we're more interested in the distance from the sun and what kind of heating that you know, solar flux can provide. And there's actually a location right around the main asteroid belt that we call the ice line or snow line, where the water phase, as it condenses out from your primordial uh, you know, planetary nebula as the solar system is forming, would go from being in that vapor phase to either, when you're closer to the sun, being a liquid or uh, vapor phase versus the outer solar system past that line where it becomes solid, where it's just too cold to be in either of the other two states. And so that has relevance in terms of some of the asteroid bodies as well as the outer solar system where you see things like the icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn, which have a lot of excitement because of that water content, but we see it in the form of solid ice. Because many of these, what we call icy satellites, do not have an atmosphere, you end up with a very cold surface and thus solid ice, but depending on the condition that the moons are in, you can sometimes get liquid water below that ice shell. So for example, some of the major moons of Jupiter and a few of Saturn's moons, although they have this ice shell, because they are so close to their parent planet and have a kind of resonance with their fellow moons, you actually get these tides. So just like on Earth, you have ocean tides that I want to say they reach about 12 and a half meters high. These moons experience substantial tides of their solid body. So on one of the moons of Jupiter, Europa, the solid body deforms by, I want to say, about 30 meters. It's pretty substantial. And so the effect of that is you are able to maintain a melt layer. So if you think of a exercise ball, you know, little squishy ones that you use to, to just you know, squish back and forth, you know, eventually that friction in a simplified sense is able to melt and maintain that melt layer of a subsurface ocean for Europa, Ganymede, and one of the moons of Saturn, uh, Europa. And so there's a great deal of excitement in studying and understanding these systems where we have this liquid water layer, potential habitable environment, and really getting at what additional components are involved in these systems that may indicate that it is more habitable or less. So the, out, the outside is ice. And then right underneath that is water. Is, does it then go back to an ice? Is it like a, a layer or is it just like an ice ball with liquid all inside? So essentially what you do is you go from an exterior of ice to a layer of water below that, followed by a rocky mantle. And then uh, depending on the body, you, know, uh, uh, you can have an iron or metal core. I was going to ask about the core. Is there a warm core on any of these? Well, so not on Europa, but one of the moons of Jupiter does have a magnetic field, which might indicate that there is a liquid metal. 
Now, d- now, now, keep in mind, that is not my area of expertise. So then can you talk about your studies and the field in general about studying that liquid layer? My work specifically is looking the dwarf planet Ceres, which is located in the main asteroid belt. Now, Ceres, there is currently a mission at Ceres. It's called Dawn, Dawn Spacecraft, and it is right now our best source of information regarding this dwarf planet. It has three instruments. It has a framing camera, which images in with a clear filter as well as uh, several color filters to essentially get at what the visible range of compositions. It also has a visible infrared spectrometer, so we can get at a f- much larger range of chemical signatures, again, at that very, very surface level. And it also has the gamma ray neutron spectrometer, which gets at elemental compositions. Uh, again, these all just really tell us about that surface level. So if we wanted to know whether there's uh, you know, an abundance of ice below the surface, below that one meter, which is probably what we would want as a resource, we're going to need a different tool or a different method to get at that information. Now, one of the advantages with the Dawn mission is that it has visited two bodies in the, in the main asteroid belt. Is it like a satellite? Or- so it's a spacecraft that is actually using uh, the new technology for the ion engine. So it Starts off slow, but because it has a constant thrust, as long as it's going, it essentially picks up speed. So the longer it runs, the faster it goes. But because of this ion engine and the efficiency of that, we are also able to visit multiple bodies, essentially change those trajectories and visit first Vesta, which is also a major body, uh, and now Ceres. So how far away is it right now? So it's already uh, completed its tour of Vesta, uh, which Vesta's orbit takes it about, uh, I want to say about 3.5, 3.6 AU, and those are units of distance relative of Earth's distance from the sun. So from the Earth to the sun, we consider that one AU or astronomical unit. Uh, 3.5 is just 3.5 times that distance. It's a very self-centered um, measure of it's like 400 distance. Million miles it, is, it is, but it's also a good way of sort of visualizing because if I give you that number in kilometers, okay. it loses all meaning and you're just like, Ugh. but it's getting at this water content and where we can find it and the conditions in, at which it exists is really a driving force behind a lot of work in planetary science. Then we are really building a solid picture of a dynamic place within our own solar system that may provide the opportunity for life today. Another way that we are getting at possible water content and uh, concepts of habitability at Mars is also through these surface features that others have worked on that are probably on the show. <laughs> Mary, Mary Beth uh, and James Ray and others who have done fantastic work and um, Luju, who is also part of our department here, where they've essentially been able to identify and confirm uh, water content from these streaks on Mars. Shocker. Water is extremely important. We are hyper aware of that fact here on Earth, but it's true elsewhere in space as well, which is why it was thrilling when Georgia Tech researchers finally proved the existence of water on Mars this fall. That discovery was made by another graduate student at Georgia Tech, Luju Oja, who works in the lab of Dr. James Ray. Dr. Ray is a professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology's School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. His lab investigates the surface of planets, in particular of our neighbor planet Mars. Here, he tells us about the dramatic history of water on Mars, and why Mars might be a particularly viable target in the search for extraterrestrial life. 
let's just start out by having you give a quick explanation about what your lab studies. Understanding the compositions of planetary surfaces, so what other planets or their moons are made of. So we focus on solid planets, the inner solar system, and Mars is a place that NASA has sent a lot of missions to recently, so we have a lot of great data from Mars and also one of the most fascinating places in terms of potential for life elsewhere. And Why is that? You know, now we're in an era where we know of thousands of planets beyond our solar system as well as... But of all of them, Mars is the most Earth-like, I would say, that we know so far. You have rocks made of similar things to the rocks here. You have evidence that water has flowed and pooled on the surface in the past and potentially even today. And water is the most obvious requirement that life as we know it on Earth needs. You know, we go out there, if we're looking for life that we have no idea what its properties would be like, you know, you have to start somewhere and water is kind of the most fundamental. So are we searching for life like us then or like Earth? We are to a certain extent, but people have written at length about why water is just so perfect that you're never going to find a, a chemical substitute that could do all of the things that water can do. So, you know, requirements for life, you could list water. For Earth-like life, there are some basic chemical building blocks, carbon, hydrogen, Nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, sulfur are the ones people usually list. You need an energy source, you need building blocks, but those things are maybe a little easier to imagine different ways of doing it on a different planet, whereas water seems to be pretty fundamental. So that's what we started out looking for. Yeah, that makes total sense. Could you give a brief recap on the history of the search for water on Mars and for life on Mars as well? We knew actually centuries ago that Mars likely had solid water. So the Mars has polar ice caps, just like the Earth. And Cassini, the 17th century astronomer, was the first to look through a telescope and see there were these bright features on the north and south poles of Mars that came and went with the seasons. So uh, even back in the 1970s, the orbiters were starting to get images that showed curving valleys that branched and came back together and, and looked for all the world like networks of fluvial river valleys here on the earth, but there wasn't a drop of water in them. And by that you mean like the Grand Canyon, how the water forms the yeah, canyons? Yeah, exactly. And, and they would have uh, sinuosity to them, twists and turns in a way that just a tectonic rift wouldn't produce. So it sure looked like water had been there to carve these. That was sort of all we could say, and there was no activity obvious to us at that time. So about five years ago, we had half a decade worth of coverage with this high-resolution imaging camera, high-rise, such that we could start looking at places we'd looked at a few years earlier and see if anything had changed on the surface. And we found a lot of interesting things. We've seen places where there are new impact craters. We've seen sand move because it was blown by the winds. We've seen avalanches of rocks. But the exciting thing a few years ago was we saw a few places where there were dark trails of something that were appearing on warm, sun-facing slopes in the spring and summertime, and slowly growing down the slopes, and then they would fade away in the winter, and then they'd come back the next year when it was warm again. And if you measured the temperatures on these slopes, basically they could be active whenever the temperature was warm enough that water would be stable at the surface. So this was pretty highly suggestive of some involvement for current-day water 
The infrared spectrometer then was what we wanted to use to prove it, because again, if there is liquid water on the surface, it should have a certain spectral signature in the infrared. It would absorb sunlight preferentially at certain wavelengths relative to others. So we went looking at these locations, and when I say we, really, it's uh, my PhD student, Lujendra Ocha, and he's been working with CRISM data for a few years and gotten better and better at narrowing in on very small features on the surface because basically these dark streaks are right at the limit of what we can resolve with the cameras. So he tried to look for a signature of liquid water and didn't quite find that, but what he did see was an H2O feature in the spectrum attributable to water bound in a mineral, specifically an enhanced concentration of hydrated salt minerals in these dark streaks versus in the brighter slopes right next to them. So the only way we can think of that that could happen is if you have liquid water driving the activity that is producing the darkening on the slope. So that was the, the smoking gun, if not seeing the gun itself being fired. So it's not actual water moving on the surface, it's water molecules that are bound in minerals that are moving. That's right. And one of the challenges that we face is that the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that this high-rise camera and CRISM spectrometer are on is stuck in an orbit around Mars where every time it passes over the surface, it's 3 p.m. at that location on the surface. So 3 p.m., it turns out, is the driest part of the day on Mars. <laughs> it's when all the morning dew has long evaporated away. But in these locations, we would hypothesize that you, you would have wetness at the surface in the morning, but by midday, it's just so dry that perhaps it makes sense that all you would see then is the few H2O molecules still bound to the salts. So is this a, a daily cycle, you think, then, where in the morning it's perhaps ice or liquid, and then in the afternoon it's bound by minerals, and then again yeah. it, during the night it re... Rehydrates, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and maybe <laughs> like solidifies? What's the right word that re Yeah, it's, it's a really weird process, deliquescence, where certain salts kind of behave as super desiccants, you know, like silica gels that can absorb the water from nearby things. So these salts are so good at absorbing water from the surrounding environment that they actually will form a little puddle of liquid around them. And the kind of salt that we're seeing this water preserved in is called perchlorate salt. It's a pretty rare type of salt on the Earth. You find it in some extreme deserts, but apparently it's pretty common on Mars. We've found it in a number of landing sites now. And it's very effective at doing this process of deliquescence where it sucks water out of atmosphere out of ice that it might be in contact with, or if there's any water around, it'll grab it. And if you're sitting on a steep slope, then gravity should slowly pull Got that it. liquid down slope. Are there specific areas where this is happening where you could feasibly like go send a probe and be like, go check it out and take a sample and tell me if it's real? I would love to do that. <laughs> but NASA wants to be a little bit careful about such things because we have this long-term goal of finding life on Mars. What we really don't want to have happen is we go and find life and then realize it's life that we brought with us right. on an imperfectly sterilized spacecraft. So mm -hmm. they have a policy called planetary protection, which is kind of like the Star Trek Prime Directive, but <laughs> real life. Uh, and planetary protection says that any place you find on Mars or another planet that looks like it could sustain life today, even of extremophiles, you're not allowed to land 
or touch that place unless you do certain things to thoroughly sterilize your spacecraft, like bake it at several hundred degrees Celsius for several hours, which no engineer wants to do to no. their delicate billion-dollar spacecraft. Right. Are there scientific barriers, or is it like policy barriers that you just need to I think out? probably both there will probably end up being a, a back-and-forth sort of negotiation. For decades, we haven't really been serious about trying to sterilize the spacecraft to this level because we haven't found any place that seemed like it was as habitable today as these features might be. So now that the rubber needs to meet the road here, I think there will be some give and take between the engineers saying, well, you can bake this component that's going to actually touch the soil but we really can't bake this other component, but it's just in the interior and it won't make contact. It can't contaminate anything anyway, and right. then NASA has to okay that. We have sort of a sequence of Mars missions that has been plotted out with, again, sort of back-and-forth negotiations between the science community and the NASA leadership and Office of Management and Budget and mm -hmm. all interested parties where we've kind of got a plan for most of the next decade, the next six or seven years anyway, for what missions will go to Mars. So probably if we wanted to add on something like this that we don't quite know how to do yet anyway, it would be the end of the decade ahead at the earliest, sadly. <laughs> well, hey, at least it's in a lifetime. Yes. yes. That's, that's the important part. Yeah. So much you can find out about planets in space. <laughs> yeah, the hard thing about trying to study four billion years of history is you can only look at what's there today. Yeah, there's only so much technology you can send, there's only so much information you can collect. You know, when I was little, it seemed like we would be sending people to Mars in just a few years. I feel like there's more excited talk about that now, even, you know, this year than there has been previously, and we had a big movie <laughs> debut yeah. a few months ago, The Martian, that has excited a lot of people about that. Um, now we know there's water there that humans could use. And I still think that getting humans to the surface of Mars will accelerate the rate of scientific discovery there. It'll also cost a hundred times as much, so that's the, yeah. the trade-off that you make. I think the interesting thing to see in the the next decade or so will be as robotics become an even bigger part of daily life here on the Earth as we can send more and more capable robots to Mars. Uh, how does that, that trade-off between the cost versus the, the benefit of sending humans evolve? Right. For the first time in human history, we have real evidence, real data, that indicates to us that there is indeed water on Mars. But Mars is only one planet in one solar system, and while it holds huge promise, there's an infinite expanse of space beyond that merits exploration. But of course, there's the barrier of time and space between us and these distant solar systems messing things up for us. So we talked to Dr. Sebastian Lapine in the Department of Astronomy at Georgia State University. He responds to this challenge with an even more bold set of experiments. He sets his eyes and his telescopes beyond Mars and beyond our solar system. He looks for planets that have the ability to sustain life, and he does it in epic fashion. He uses some pretty intense computer science to find and target planets orbiting stars hundreds of light years away, planets that may resemble Earth. He can even tell you what the composition of the atmosphere is on such a planet. Before we let him tell you about what he's found, we must first explain his methods. It's pretty dense, and we apologize, but just hang on, because it's worth it. 
The radial velocity method uses spectroscopy, or the study of light and colors. The easiest way to explain this is to start with the fact that gravity works both ways. Stars pull on planets, but planets also pull on stars. You can detect the pull on a star by a planet by seeing if there is a change in the light coming from the star, slash the color of the star in the images taken. So when a star is further away, it is redshifted, and when it is closer, it is blue-shifted. For all you science geeks out there, this is the Doppler effect. Basically, you can tell if a star is wobbling in space as a result of the planet orbiting around it. The bigger the wobble, the bigger the planet. I try and map out all the stars to 350 light years from the sun. Since we're playing the lottery here, so we're looking at any one star, the chances are that the planets from that star are unlikely to transit it. So it means we can't do one star at a time. You have to look at thousands upon thousands of stars. So that's why I'm more interested in going very broad. To increase the chances of increases finding Increases the chance. So, so if you're looking at a thousand stars, the odds may be that only five or ten of those stars are going to have a planet that can be detected by transit. So the team I'm working with has already identified planets orbiting a number of stars. And right now we're trying to understand what types of stars these are and what kinds of planets. And so then once you identify targets, what exactly are you looking for to characterize the planet? So the goal is to find planets where you can have living organisms. Basically, it comes down to whether the surface of the planet can have things that we normally associate with living organisms. So that might mean chemical compounds that you can find in living things, and also the chemicals that life uses in order to live, grow, and reproduce. As we've heard from our previous speakers, the most important and common of these chemicals is water. And not just any water, but liquid water. We're trying to find planets that are orbiting their stars in this region we call the habitable zone. By habitable zone, we don't mean that any planet in this particular zone will necessarily have life on it. But it means that a planet that is orbiting the star at that distance will have liquid water on it. So not have a surface that is too hot that all the water will evaporate Mm -hmm. or not a surface that is too cold that the water will all freeze. And this zone is actually relatively large. Does it vary with the quality of the star? Yes, exactly. Now, if the star is more powerful than our sun, and there are some stars in our galaxy that are, then you would need a planet to orbit at a much larger distance. The majority of the stars are in this class of stars called red dwarfs. And these are stars that are less massive than our sun, have a cooler surface temperature. So for most M stars, we think that planets that orbit around them in one, two, three months are going to be close enough to have liquid water. When you find a planet, the first thing that you identify is the orbital period, and that determines how far it is. Planets that orbit closer to their star takes a, a smaller amount of time to go around it. Planets that orbit farther out have longer year. Mm-hmm. So once we know that, then we need to determine what type of star that is. So we look at the color of the star, which allows us to determine the mass of the star, the radius of the star, and the surface temperature. And from that, then we can figure out if the planet is in this habitable zone. So then you've identified a planet in a habitable zone of a star. What do you look for next? 
Okay, well, the next step, so if you're still interested in life, at this point we have to combine both the transit and the radial velocity method. Dr. Lapine uses two methods, the transit method and the radial velocity method. Both are based on images of stars taken by telescopes in space. The transit method takes a time course of pictures of a star and looks for moments when a circling planet eclipses a star, blocking the light and creating a shadow in the picture. From this, he can determine the size of the planet using the star as a reference. He can also determine how long it takes to orbit the star based on how frequent the eclipse is. So the transit method typically gives us the size of the planet, whereas the radial velocity method that measures how much the star is being pulled by the planet will tell us how massive the planet is. And this tells us both if the planet is comparable to the Earth, if it's small enough, but also we know the density of a planet, which tells us if the planet is made of mostly gas, mostly liquid, or if it is rocky. Mm -hmm. So we'd be trying to look for a planet that is comparable in size to the Earth and that presumably is dense enough to have a rocky surface. Sometimes we find planets that are a little less dense than the Earth. These are called water worlds, so presumably those would be big balls of water. Uh, and you'd think, well, that's a good thing because you have tons of water in there for life, but on the other hand, it'd be too diluted. So we think that life can evolve on a planet if you have some water puddles, or small lakes. So when we find a planet to be a gas giant, well, we put it in the trash bin or a water world, we sort of keep it on the side. Okay, so once you have a transiting planet and you think it's the correct size to possibly have a rocky surface and some kind of an ocean, something you may need to check for is if it has an atmosphere. So how do you do that? Well, you can do that with the transit method, but it's very difficult, <laughs> as you might think. When a planet with an atmosphere transits the star, some of the light is going to be modified or absorbed a little bit because it's, it has shone through the atmosphere of the planet. So you know how the light from the sun gets all wonky during sunset or sunrise? Well, that's because the chemicals in the atmosphere are messing with it. The same idea applies here. So we're basically looking at all the sunsets <laughs> of that planet at the same time. So if the planet has no atmosphere, it's only blocking a part of the light, not changing it. So the color would look exactly the same. But if the planet has an atmosphere, chemicals in the atmosphere of the star will be absorbing light of specific colors. So you can tell the composition. So too. we can tell the composition of the atmosphere. So you can use a technique called differential spectroscopy. You can look at the light from a star before the transit mm -hmm. and a light from the star during the transit. And by subtracting the two, you know what happens when part of the light of the star shines through the atmosphere. And this allows you first to know whether the planet has an atmosphere or not. And so you'd be able to say... For instance, if the atmosphere has carbon dioxide or water or nitrogen in it, you can first try and figure out if the atmosphere would still make the planet livable or not. Then it's, it's a little debatable. Well, what do we need in an atmosphere for a planet to be habitable? Is it okay if it's just nitrogen, carbon dioxide, water vapor? What about ammonia? But even if the atmosphere of the planet looks like a good place for life, it still doesn't mean that there's life on the surface. Mm -hmm. The thing we're trying to determine right now is if you can have combination of gases in the atmosphere of a planet that would only happen if life is 
present on the surface, what we call the biosignature. So one example is here on Earth, we have a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. But there's a problem with oxygen. Oxygen is actually very reactive. Mm -hmm. So if you have a planet with liquid water on the surface and there's iron in the rocks, the oxygen will easily react with the iron and make rust. Just like we see on Mars, for instance, this red color. The reason why we have so much oxygen on the surface of Earth is because plants keep producing it. Right with photosynthesis. So it is thought that if you can find a planet that has an atmosphere with a lot of oxygen, then you would think, well, maybe it means this planet has life on the surface. This is pretty much the point at which we are right now. So I've been discussing this biosignature thing, and I keep saying we're not sure, we're not sure, we're not sure. The only way we would be sure that there's actual life on those planets is if we were able to take actual images of those planets. Mm -hmm. If you look at pictures from space of planet Earth, you see the blue from the oceans, you see the continents, you see the green from the plant life. Plant life actually changes color depending on the seasons. So if we had nice pictures like that of distant planets, it would be much more obvious uh, to see if there's life. Getting images like that of distant planets is impossible at this time, but is something that might be impossible in the near future. What would need to happen technologically to make that? Well, there you go. If we want to get a picture of of a planet, we would need two things. So we need a huge telescope to see the light from the planet. And the second thing we'd need to do is we need to cancel out the light from the star. Mm -hmm. And there are various methods that are being explored right now where you would use what's called a star shade, which it's a a large piece of metal that you float somewhere in space so that it would block the light from a star. And then you'd be able to see the light from anything that's around it, like using your thumb to block the light from the sun so you can see stuff around the sun. I'm thinking about maybe decades Uh, to see the light from the planet itself. Now, how big of a telescope we would need to to get a nice, beautiful picture of a planet and see the continents, well, that might be very big. (laughs) So think of a telescope the size of of a football stadium that you'd stand in space. And with a star shade, can you move that around so you could look at multiple? Exactly. So you'd have to move the star shade in different places through the solar system so that it blocks light from different (laughs) stars. So before we do that, we better identify our best candidates. Now, this is still, I think, realistic, so we have chances of being able to do that. But getting images of distant planets is much more reasonable than trying to send a spaceship over there. We don't have the technology right now at all to send spaceships over there. So for the foreseeable future, we're going to have to content ourselves with getting images. Mm -hmm. But that would still be exciting. So we can still get evidence of life on other planets. While waiting Uh, for technology to catch up. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas we'd have no hope of getting there within a human lifetime. Right. So even if we could move at the speed of light, how would you convince someone to be like, oh, yes, you won't see this, your children won't see this, your great-great-great-grandchildren will never see the fruits of this effort, but we should still do it. Well, we have a problem, obviously, with human lifetime. So mm-hmm. if, if, if we want to start traveling to the nearest stars, then we need a ways to extend human lifetime. Because right now, 80, 90 years isn't much. Mm-mm. But then it's like, in all the space movies, you see people like being frozen or like sure. sending a colonizing group. And then really, it's like their grandchildren that colonize yeah, or something. Yeah, just like. not ideal. 
So we'll do the telescope and star shade. Let's, get let's some do targets. the large telescopes, the star shades. So what's what's amazing is up until 20 years ago, we had no targets at all. Whereas now we have thousands of exoplanets that we have detected. And a significant fraction of them are planets in habitable zones that can potentially have life on them. From the finding of ancient molecular signatures of life, to nearby ice planets and their wild subsurface oceans, to our rusty, dusty neighbor, the red planet, carrying the solvent of life, all the way to the deep reaches of our universe, where unknown suns may shed their light and warmth on life-sustaining planets, we've gone far and wide to find life, out there, in the deep. There's no way to do a space podcast without referencing Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot speech. If you haven't seen it, pause this podcast, go to the link in our show notes. Please, you won't regret it. Dr. Sagan refers to our planet as a moat of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. The largeness of space can make us feel very small. But the story of science is all about asking bold questions and conducting bold, bodacious experiments that defy the odds and bend the imagination. Hopefully today, we've given you a story that does just that. A true story, based on evidence gathered by innumerable, dedicated scientists who have made incredible sacrifices over hundreds of years to expand the outlines of the human imagination. If only Galileo could see us now. We would like to thank Mary Beth Wilhelm and Heather Chilton, as well as Drs. James Ray and Sebastian Lapine, for their time and expertise. To suggest a topic for a future episode, tweet us at odyssey underscore podcast. Odyssey is created by Dave Matthews and Taryn McLaughlin, produced by David Golden and narrated by me, Michael Evans. Special help from Jamie King and Allison Stevenson. Our music today comes from Donnie Evans. Odyssey is supported by Emory University's SciComm and the Emory Media Council. The opinions expressed on Odyssey do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next time for more students telling the story of science.